I'm Marty Moscoway, and welcome to The Connection. Today on the show, what makes a good communicator? According to our guest, Charles Duhigg, they ask probing and well-timed questions. They really listen and are adept at reading another person's emotions, even the hidden ones. They know how to match the tone and content of their conversation with yours. They aren't afraid to share their vulnerabilities, and they are authentic. That's what Duhigg writes in his new book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. It's based on the latest research on what happens when we talk to another person, something we do every day, largely without thinking. So today on the show, we put conversation under the microscope, how our brains can align when we talk with each other, how to navigate highly charged conflicts, how nonverbal communication can either undermine or reinforce the words we use, why laughter is so important, the difference between face-to-face communication and online chats, and much, much more. Charles Duhigg is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, wrote several other books, including The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. He's a writer for The New Yorker and joins us today on The Connection. Nice to have you with us on the show, Charles. Thank you for having me on. You know, I, I love this topic because it's a, it's a combination of something that we do every day, as I mentioned in my introduction, often without thinking, but it is also something that is so profoundly important to our well-being, this idea of being able to communicate with each other. And I'm curious, curious about how you got interested in this topic. Yeah. So it actually started because I... I recognize that I was having trouble like, communicating, <laughs> there you particularly go. with the people who are most important to me. And, and I'm supposed to be a professional communicator because I'm a journalist. Um, I fell into this bad pattern with my wife where I'd, I'd come home from work after a long day and I'd start complaining to her. And and she very reasonably would suggest some solutions, like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and get to know each other better? And instead of being able to hear what she was saying, I would become upset. And then she would become upset because I was acting, I was overreacting to what she was saying. and. And I kept wondering, we're two people who both love each other and like each other. We've been together for two decades. Why do we have trouble communicating on these small things? And so I started calling up experts and asking them. Well, in fact, what you found, and I guess this is what the experts have found, which is that there are essentially three kinds of communication. One is practical, and it's about information or data, you know, where should we go for dinner, things like that. Uh, One is emotional, which is obviously about how we feel about something and perhaps how you felt at work. And one is social, which is about our identities and our relationships to each other. So should we proceed with this idea that we're basically talking about three ways of talking to each other? Yeah. And what's important is what's known as within psychology is the matching principle that we're having the same conversation at the same moment and that we move through those different kinds of discussions together because all three of them usually happen during one long conversation. When I came home from work, I was clearly having an emotional conversation and my wife was responding with a practical conversation. And both of those are legitimate, but we couldn't hear each other because we were having different kinds of conversations. And one of the things that we've learned is that there are some people who are particularly good, not because they're special or born special or they have they have unique characters but simply because they've learned a couple of skills at identifying what kind of conversation is occurring and then matching the other person and inviting them to match back 
And I want to talk about all those skills, but let me just underscore something, which is this miscommunication between you and your wife was a kind of mismatch. You were having one conversation and she was having another and they just didn't line up. Exactly. And, and we actually see that in people's brains. We, we are living through this golden age of understanding communication like never before because of advances in neural imaging and data collection. And one of the things that we've learned is that when we really connect with someone, when we're having a real conversation, our bodies and our brains start to, to reflect each other. Um, our pupils will start dilating at the same rate. Our breath patterns will start to match each other. And we're not aware of that. But even more important, within our brains, my thoughts and your thoughts are becoming more and more aligned. If we were to look at, at images of our neural activity, we would see that it's starting to look more and more similar. And this kind of makes sense because when I describe to you a feeling or I have an idea and I explain it to you, if it works, you also experience that feeling at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. You experience that idea. And it's this, this coming together, this alignment of our thinking, what's known within neurology as neural entrainment, that's at the core of communication. And it's how we connect. Well, and I think so that... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to say, so, so if I'm having an emotional conversation, I'm using a different part of my brain right. than you are when you have a practical conversation. And so we have to align those. The metaphor that you use, and I think it works really well with this, uh, is the metaphor of musicians doing a duet, which is yeah. this, you know, they are connected. They are in concert, literally, as as they're performing a piece of music and handing it back and forth and, and completely and totally aligned with each other. But it turns out the same thing happens when we're listening to a great story or when we're having a really good conversation with a friend. We, we get to a point when we can almost finish each other's sentences. We know what's coming, what they're going to say next, and, and we know how we feel about it. And that's really powerful. And in fact, our brains have evolved to crave that kind of connection because communication has always been homo sapiens superpower. It's the thing that let us form families and then villages and then communities and cities and countries. And so our brains have evolved to be very good at communication. But of course, they evolved in a very different time before telephones sure. and the internet. <laughs> and so one of the things that sometimes we need to do right now is be reminded of how communication works so that we can let our instincts take over. You also talk, and I think as you describe that, that feeling when you're talking with someone and you're in sync, I think... I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what that feels like. Um, yeah. And I remember years and years ago doing an interview with an anthropologist here in Philadelphia. He used to go to bars and he would watch sort of who would pick up who, you know. Um, <laughs> this is what anthropologists get to do from time to time. <laughs> and when people were aligned, when they would, you know, pick up their drink at sort of the same time or cross their legs sort of at the same time, probably smoke a cigarette. This was a long time ago. He knew who was going to walk out the door with whom because based yeah. on this kind of synchronicity. That's exactly right. And what's important to note is this is not mimicry, right? It, one of the interesting things about the human brain is that it is very fine-tuned to note inauthenticity because there were many times in our species history where inauthenticity was deadly dangerous. And so when somebody is simply mimicking us, we tend not to believe that we're connected. But on the other hand, when we become connected, when we're having the same kind of conversation at the same time, when we're in sync with each other, we start doing those physical things you mentioned almost automatically. We don't realize that we're that we're matching each other. It just happens. 
So it's it's not manipulating someone. It's really just mirroring, being on, on the same page with them. That's exactly right. And it's very hard to manipulate people with language. We know this from study after study. And in, in fact, there was one study that was done where researchers taped um, friends who were laughing together and strangers laughing together. And they would play just one second of each tape for listeners. And listeners with 90% accuracy could tell who were friends and who were strangers. We know how to listen for real connection. And when we find it, we feel it. Let me go back to super communicators. And I, I, I loosely define them in, in my introduction here. But I think we've all met people that w- when the conversation is over, you feel like, gosh, I felt like the only person in the room. What do these super communicators do? What do they have that makes them so super? Absolutely. Well, the, the first thing to note is that it's it's literally just a set of skills. Anyone can become a super communicator. And in fact, you know super communicators. And there's moments when you're a super communicator yourself. If I was to ask you, if you had a bad day and you wanted to call a friend who you know would make you feel better, does someone pop into your mind right away? Do you know who you would call? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people listening do. That person for you is a super communicator. And you're probably a super communicator back. Now, there are some people who can do that more consistently. They can do that with almost anyone. They can connect across divides or with anyone that they want to connect to. And what we found is that it's not because they're extroverts or charismatic. In fact, oftentimes it's exactly the opposite. Rather, it's that they've learned to think about conversation just a little bit deeper. And as a result, they've built some habits. One thing that, for instance, super communicators do is they ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. And some of those questions are what's known as deep questions, that, which are special because they ask someone about their beliefs or their values or their experiences. And, and these can be very easy to ask. If you meet someone who's a doctor, you can say, oh, you know, what made you decide to go to medical school? Or what do you, what do you love about your job? They're your, you know, two questions in, and those aren't hard questions to ask, but they're deep questions because they, they invite the other person to tell you something meaningful about themselves. And it also seems that super communicators, as you describe them, kind of bring out the best in other people. Would that be fair? That's exactly right. And often it's because they're showing us that they're listening to us and they're, in fact, proving that they're listening to us, which is really important, particularly in hard conversations, conversations where we're anxious or we disagree with each other. And many people think that listening is about what we do while someone's speaking, (laughs) but actually the way that we prove that we're listening is what we do after they finish speaking. There's a technique that's taught at Harvard Law School and Stanford and known as looping for understanding. And what it says is, if you're in a tough conversation, this is what you should do. Three steps. First, ask a question, preferably a deep question. Secondly, repeat back what you've just heard in your own words. And third, and this is the most important one that everyone always forgets, ask if you got it right. Hmm. Now, of course, If you understand what they said, you don't have to go through all those three steps. But what's interesting is when I do that, it convinces you that I'm listening. It convinces you that I'm not just waiting my turn to speak. And when you know that I am listening, when I've proved it to you, you become more willing to listen in return. And that's where real understanding comes from. We're almost about a minute away or so from our break here, but but that has a lot to do with questions and follow-up yes. questions. Because questions say, I'm interested in what you have to say. I, I'm curious about, you know, who you are, uh, what happened to you, and I want to know more. Yeah. 
No, it's really powerful. And, and those questions, often a way of showing, doing that looping for understanding is asking a follow-up question that makes it clear that you were paying attention. And a question in and of itself is asking them, did I get this right? Questions can be incredibly powerful, particularly when they're deep questions. And they're easy to ask. We just have to look for opportunities to do so. I mean, it seems that there are, are questions and then there's the follow-up question. I mean, this is sort of about journalism as well, but also in human <laughs> conversation, the follow-up question might be even more powerful than just the, 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 the question. Oh, absolutely. There was a study done by some researchers at Harvard where they looked at speed daters and they found that the best best speed dates, the ones where people said they wanted to meet afterwards, it was because one or both people were asking follow-up questions that proved that they were listening and paying attention, but more importantly, that sent sent a message to the other person, I want to connect with you. I'm interested in learning about you. And it's that signaling of wanting to connect that uh, that very frequently makes connection possible. Well, we're using the word connection a lot today on the show <laughs> called The Connection. And Charles Duhick's book is titled Super Communicators. And it's subtitled How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. And we are basically, as I said in my introduction, kind of putting conversation, dialogue uh, under a microscope. Why we do what we do, how we sometimes miscommunicate, and much, much more. We've got a very short break, and then we'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Every week on this show, we discuss the qualities that make us uniquely human, some of the challenges that can make life difficult, and what it takes to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And again, our guest is Charles Duhigg. He's got a new book. It's called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. I want to go back to super communicators, uh, especially when they're in a meeting or part of a group, because you kind of deconstruct how they navigate when there's a room full of people. They're not the ones that you know, that are talking all the time or or the ones that we even notice. Help us understand what they are doing, perhaps even behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, in, in the book, we tell two stories that are very apropos of that. One of them is about what happens inside a jury, a jury room as jurors try and make their decisions. And there's only been about five law cases where we've allowed the courts have allowed cameras and recording devices into a jury's room as they're making choices and decisions. But one of them happened a, a number of years, a handful of years ago, and I got access to the tapes and the transcripts. And what we found is that this was a trial where uh, a man named Leroy Reed had been arrested for possessing a gun, right. which as an ex-con he wasn't allowed to do. But he had never actually touched the gun. He just bought it and put it in a box in his closet and had never used it again. And there were some people in that room who were on the jury who said, look, this is about justice. This is about fairness. We don't think it's fair to send someone to jail simply because he made one mistake. And then there were other people in the room who said, look, this is about law and order. If we don't enforce the laws, if we don't uphold the laws, even if we don't think they're great laws, then anarchy will reign. Now, what's interesting is neither of those groups understood that they were having different conversations. Hmm. Because oftentimes, unless someone's pointed out to us, taught us to look for these different kinds of conversations, we don't notice them. 
But of course, one of those, the justice conversation was an emotional conversation or po- and the, the fair, the law and order conversation was about practicality. Right. And there was one guy in this room, a guy named John Bowley, who was not very popular. You know, most of the people on this jury, they were stay at home parents or they, they worked in factories. Bowley was a professor of English whose, whose focus was Derrida. He showed up wearing this very formal suit. One guy I talked to who's on the jury said he didn't he didn't understand anything that Bully said, but <laughs> Bully was a super communicator yeah. and he understood that he has to have different kinds of conversations with these two groups to get them aligned. And that's exactly what he did over the next four or five hours. He had different kinds of conversations and he brought everyone together until they agreed a not guilty verdict was the right one. In fact, there was one holdout, and he it wasn't like he was beating him into submission. He just tried to engage him um, to to get him to, what, think differently? Absolutely. In fact, what he did is he asked deep questions to try and figure out, how does this guy see the world? How do I understand him? What kind of logic would appeal to him? And what he said is, I believe in law and order. I believe in applying the law. I believe mm-hmm. in public safety. And as soon as John Bully heard that, he said, you know, I really respect that. I care about public safety too. And here we are with this case where this guy doesn't seem to pose a danger and there's rapists and murderers who are not getting arrested. If we set him free, we're sending a message to the DA to focus on the real criminals. And that's going to help public safety in the long term. And this guy who had been, who had been very resistant to voting not guilty, as soon as he heard that, as soon as he heard someone speaking his language, speaking his logic, he said, you know what? I agree. Let's go not guilty. I mean, that's, that's so, so powerful. Let me shift gears here slightly. We're having, I guess, a conversation. It's also an interview. Um, And I prepared a bunch of questions. I'm asking questions. I'm listening. Um, But an interview is not a conversation. I mean, it has some, some features of a conversation, but it's not. Um, Pick that apart for us. Well, the big distinction is, and you're exactly right. And I wish, you know, if, if we were having a conversation, I would be asking you a lot of questions (laughs) in return, right? right? Because, because in an interview, there's usually one person asking questions and another person answering, but in a conversation, we both have to participate. We both have to bring ourselves to that, to that discussion. And so if you ask me a question, it's very natural for me to ask you a question back Sure. to ask you, what do you, what do you, how did this affect you? What do you think about it? And within psychology, this is known as reciprocal authenticity. And it's really powerful because if I ask you a question and you say something that it's potentially a little bit personal or vulnerable, if I don't respond in kind, if I don't acknowledge what I've, what you've said, if I don't share something about myself, the conversation will begin to feel very one-sided. And so one thing that super communicators do is they look for those opportunities to match someone that aren't obvious. For instance, if you're at work and before a meeting starts, you ask someone, you know, what'd you do this weekend? And they say, oh, my son graduated from college. I went to the graduation. The most natural thing would say, be to say, oh, congratulations. Sure. And, and now let's get down to business. But a super communicator, a super communicator will recognize, oh, this is actually an invitation to talk about something deeper, something that's potentially more emotional. And they might ask, what did it feel like to watch your son walk across the stage? Like, does it feel amazing to like know that this kid is out on their way, making their way in the world? 
those questions are invitations to others to say, I want to connect with you. I want to learn about you. And when they happen, we've all had that experience. It feels wonderful. It feels like someone's giving us a gift. As I mentioned, I mean, I prepared for this interview, which is not, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a conversation, but it's mostly an interview. But I get the feeling in your book, you, you talk a lot about sort of preparing for whatever conversation you might have. It might take you 10 seconds to jot down a few things. Why is that so important to prepare, especially when we think of ourselves as kind of natural communicators? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. And I imagine you know, you probably prepare for these interviews extensively. It's obvious you've, you've read the book, yep. but when you're having conversations with, with loved ones, do you, do you find yourself preparing in your own mind a little bit? No. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that we know is that you might be doing this without even realizing it. And it's really healthy for you. So let me ask the question a little bit differently. There was a study that was done, um, where at Harvard, where they were going to ask a bunch of students to have conversations with strangers. And having a conversation with a stranger is really anxiety producing. It's one of the hardest conversations we can have. And they said, okay, look, before the conversation, jot down just three topics that you might want to discuss. Just take five seconds to do this, right? The the movie that we saw last night, whether you're going to the game this weekend, did, were you going on vacation? And then with the, put that card in your pocket and go have the conversation. And what they found is that the topics that students wrote down almost never came up, but the students reported being so much less anxious huh. and enjoying the conversations so much more because they felt like they had something to fall back on. So when you're going to talk to someone who's an old friend, or when you're going to talk to someone who you haven't seen in a while and, and you want to have a real conversation, my guess is without even realizing it, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. In the back of your mind, you actually are coming up with those list of things that you want to ask about or things that you hope to talk about. It, it doesn't have to be this very deliberate activity, but by virtue of the fact that before you pick up the phone, you think to yourself, oh, I really want to ask Beth how things are going with her kid. And, and I know that they were going to go on vacation to someplace exotic. I want to ask about that. That helps us get ready for that conversation. And it makes that conversation so much more enjoyable. Let's talk about the kind of nonverbal forms of conversation or communication, whether it's body language or tone. And, and one of the things you say in the book, and it's so true, which is we often react to how we are being spoken to versus the words that a person is saying to us. Why is, why is tone so powerful, so important? It, it tells us so much, right? It, about 50% of communication is non-linguistic. And so it might be verbal. It might be the noises we make, the, the expressions we have on our faces. It could be the gestures or our body language. One of my favorite examples of this is laughter. You know, we think of laughter as being in response to something funny, but studies show that about 80% of the time when we laugh, it is not in response to any type of humor. Rather, we laugh in conversations to show someone that we want to connect with them. And they laugh back, the most natural thing they can do to show that they want to connect with us as well. And once you understand the role of laughter, it becomes really powerful. In fact, in the book, we described the, what happened at NASA a couple of decades ago when they started looking for astronauts who had more emotional intelligence. They felt like that was going to be important on long, long missions. And what they found was almost everyone could fake emotional intelligence really, really well. But if they paid attention to how astronaut candidates laughed, 
they would be able to figure out who actually wants to connect with you. Uh, uh, the psychologist who was overseeing the interviews, he would walk into these interview rooms carrying a stack of papers and he would spill them as if by accident while it was actually on purpose. And then he would laugh this huge boisterous laugh. And some of the astronaut candidates sitting there, they would politely chuckle in response because we know that we're supposed to match someone's laughter. Right. But others, others would laugh the same way he did. And those were the ones who he knew really wanted to connect. Those ended up becoming some of the most successful astronauts in NASA's history. And is that the mirroring behavior we were talking about? It's the matching behavior, right? It's, it's, it's this instinct to, to try and see things a little bit from the, from the perspective of the other person, but also show them that you're paying attention to them. If you walk in and you spill some papers and you laugh this big boisterous laugh, I don't think it's actually funny. There's nothing funny about that. But when I laugh back with the same kind of energy and the same kind of gestures, what I'm saying to you is I see what happened here. I see how you're making sense of it. And I'm, I want you to know, like I participated in this. I want to connect with you. And laughter, of course, is contagious. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the Absolutely. other part. <laughs> right, right. And we're laughing right now because yeah, we, we just did not it. because we've said anything funny, but right. but because we want to connect right. with each other. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a sign of, of friendliness, I guess. Let yeah. Me, let me just quickly reintroduce you, and that's uh, Charles Duhigg, our guest today on the connection. We're talking about his new book called Super Communicators, and it's subtitled How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. And he is an award-winning investigative journalist. In fact, he writes for The New Yorker. Well, let's talk about our conflict-ridden country and the fact that uh, our sort of fraught political environment today, we have got all these different camps viewing each other as enemies, whether we're talking about guns or abortion or the 2020 election or books or vaccines. I mean, it's just a long, long list. And I think the sense of of that we cannot talk to each other because we violently disagree with each other. How do we make how do we make those connections? Yeah. And and it's important to note, we've always disagreed with each other, right? Sure. We we just did a better job of it sometimes in the past. If you think about what the Constitutional Convention was, the birth of this country, it was people who hate each other having arguments but coming together and being able to hear each other enough to write a constitution. Now we used to teach communication in schools and as schools became more technical, it tended to drop out. But if we relearn these skills, it makes the nation a better place. You know, in, in the book, it, there's a description of this experiment where they brought together um, a group of gun control advocates and a similarly sized group of gun rights activists. And they brought them together not to try and see if they could convince each other of anything, but just to see if they could have a civil conversation because these were groups who who had literally would scream at each other most of the time at rallies. Sure. And now before the conversation started, what they did is they taught them a skill called looping for understanding. I, I think I mentioned this you before. You did, yeah where, yeah. where you sort of repeat what someone said. Is that what you said? Just to exactly. make sure I, I'm understanding what you're saying. And and that did went a long way to reducing the tension. But then everyone had this meeting. They all came away feeling like they got to know each other. Then they all went online and things completely fell apart. They started calling each other jackbooted Nazis within like 45 minutes of going on Facebook and continuing the conversation. 
And this points to another thing that happens that it's important for us to recognize, particularly around conflict or particularly in, in intimate relationships, which is when we feel like we're having a tough conversation, we all have an instinct to try and find something we can control. Right. And the most obvious thing that we can control is the person who's sitting in, across from us. So we say things like, oh, you shouldn't have felt that way. Like that wasn't such a big deal. We try and control their feelings. Or we try and say, you know, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. You, you, you bring this up all the time and, and there's no progress. We try and control the topics of discussion. That's a really toxic pattern. It's a toxic pattern in marriages and relationships. It's a toxic pattern at work. And it's a toxic pattern when we're talking about civics, when we're trying to decide who ought to be our next president. But what researchers have found, particularly researchers who have looked at married couples and how they fight, is that the best couples, the couples that stick together the longest, they don't try and extinguish that instinct for control. Rather, instead of trying to control each other, they look for things that they can control together. Like, for instance, the environment. If a fight starts at 2 o'clock in the morning, they say, let's wait until 10 a.m. when we're both a little bit well-rested to pick this up again. Or they try and control the boundaries of the argument. Instead of a fight about where we're going for Thanksgiving becoming a fight about your mother hates me and we don't have enough money, they say, let's just talk about Thanksgiving. Let's not talk about mothers or money. Hmm. But once you start controlling this together, then you feel like you're on the same team, even if you continue to disagree with each other. And that's exactly what happened with the gun rights and the gun control folks. And it can happen with our national conversation. That right now, we're so focused on trying to control the other side. If I can just get them to listen to me, if I can just make them realize they'll understand that I'm right and they're wrong. But the much better thing to do is to say, look, what are the things that we agree on? What can we control together? Do we both believe in, in a democracy? Do we, believe, do we both believe that we ought, to, we ought to have individual freedoms and personal liberties? Those things that we can control together are a path forward, not necessarily for agreeing on everything, but for coexisting. That requires a willing partner. I mean, someone who's willing to meet you halfway on a conversation like that. Absolutely. And and not everything should be a conversation, right? When, right. when I say to my kids, I want to have a conversation about your rooms, I don't actually want to have a conversation about their rooms. <laughs> I want them to go clean up their rooms. But, and and you're exactly right. We need to be in a world where people want to have those conversations. But the truth is, I think we actually want to have them. You do. I, I don't think. You do. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think people, people don't want to fight with their neighbors just because they have different signs on their lawn for different candidates. People don't want to go to Thanksgiving meal and have that pit in your stomach that crazy, your crazy uncle is going to say something that just like makes it impossible for you to enjoy yourself. People want to connect with each other. We want to be able to have a conversation. And sometimes, sometimes we get in our own way, but sometimes the internet gets in our way. Sometimes media gets in our way. But if we take a step back and we remember what has always made us strongest, what is our superpower as humans is communication. Then it indicates a way forward, particularly if we have a few skills that we know to help us connect. We're almost up on a break here, but I'm thinking part of the sort of conflicts that we're having is that each side thinks that they're right and the other person is wrong. And, and a big part of having a conversation is understanding what the goal is, right? The goal is not to convince someone else to change their mind. The goal of a conversation is not to prove that you are right. 
the goal of a conversation is simply to understand and help the and help the other person understand you. If you walk away from a conversation, not agreeing with each other, but just understanding what the other person is trying to tell you, then that conversation is a success. And that's really liberating because it means so that when you, when you do go into that conversation with your neighbor or with your crazy uncle or anyone else, that your job doesn't have to be so, so burdensome to, to correct their, correct their views of the world or to show that you, you are right and they're wrong. Your job is just to listen and understand them and ask questions and then speak in a way that invites them to understand you. Well, let's take another, sorry, Charles Duhigg, let's take another short break and we will get back to our conversation. I want to pick up on a couple of things that you just said there. And again, Charles Duhigg is our guest. His book is Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and we're talking about something we do every day, which is talk to someone. Humans are built for conversation, and yet we often misunderstand each other or get into arguments with each other, or we don't feel heard. Our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Charles Duhigg, and we've been talking about his new book called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. I'm thinking about all the the fighting now over diversity, equity, and inclusion, or even um, book banning or even book burning, and this impulse to censor someone that we don't agree with. As someone that has looked at super communicators, how do you come in on that? Well, it, let me just say that there are some forms of communication that, that are inappropriate, right? Using using racial slurs, you're saying things that make someone feel feel like they don't have a place in this discussion. Those Those should not be done. But but there's so much more that we can do. And one of my favorite examples of this is what happened at Netflix. Um, a few years ago, an executive at Netflix was in a meeting and he used the N-word in the meeting. Mm. Now, he, he was fired, it, rightfully, for doing so. But it sparked off this civil war within the company because there were some people who felt like this was evidence of, of underlying racism within Netflix and other people who said, no, you're, you're wrong. This isn't racism. This is just that you, you don't have the skills to succeed here. And this started to really fray the company. It was tearing the culture apart. Now it would have been completely normal for someone like the CEO, Reed Hastings to say, look, keep politics at home. This is a business place. Let's not have these discussions here. But instead he did the opposite. What he did is he started encouraging conversations where he said, Let's acknowledge our differences, but let's acknowledge all of our differences and our similarities. You know, we might be, we might have different colored skin. We, but 
we, there's so much more that we have in common, right? We, we, we both work here. We're both parents. We both live in this community. You're a little league coach and I coach basketball. And what they found is that particularly when it came to topics like race or gender or sexuality, one of the things that happens is that when we have these conversations and we push someone into one identity, we say, you're the white person who can talk about this, or you're the black person who can talk about this. That's when we get into trouble. But the truth is that all of us contain many different identities. And when we invite them all to the table, when we say, I know that you're an executive and I know that you're white, but you're also a mom. And I know that you work really hard to with your daughter's um, scouts group. And I know that you you used to be a lawyer. When we invite all of those different identities to the table, it makes the conversation much, much easier because now we're not forcing anyone to take on just one stereotype. We're inviting them to explain to us who they really are. And that's exactly what happened at Netflix. And it, it was really powerful because underlying that is a sense of belonging, that everyone deserves to be in this conversation. Everyone has had a racial experience. Everyone has had a gender experience. Everyone is an expert on themselves. And when we share that with each other, when we try and learn about each other, that's usually when we find all the things that we have in common instead of all the things we disagree about. And is that why when someone says, you people, dot, dot, dot. That's, that's the worst, right? A, you know, everything comes to a grinding halt. Absolutely. Or if I say to you, you know, you're a, as a woman, you must feel a certain way about this topic, you know, right. and this happens in the workplace all the time. The truth of the matter is that yeah, you are a woman, but you're also a, a professional. You're also someone who's a mom and a sister, and you probably hold leadership positions within your community. And maybe you, on in your spare time, you really enjoy playing chess. Those are all different identities that you possess. And when we invite those to the table, when I say, I want to hear how you feel on this topic, not just with one hat on, but with all the hats that you wear, that's when I create space for you to have a genuine conversation to tell me about yourself in a way that doesn't feel threatening to either of us. What can we learn from negotiators? I mean, people that are sitting at the table with people who view each other as, if not enemies, as opponents. What are negotiators, especially yeah. successful negotiators, what are they able to do to find some kind of consensus? Well, there was a really interesting study about this, um, particularly when we're intervening in those difficult conversations. And, and again, this one was focused on race, and it was a conversation between, it was done, run by a, a researcher at Stanford who set up conversations between friends, one of whom was black and one of whom was white. And she told them, you're going to talk about, about racial issues in this conversation. And that caused a lot of anxiety, right? People would get very defensive right away. But she said, look, let's start the conversation for half the group. She told them this. Let's start the conversation by acknowledging this is going to be a hard discussion, right? It's just awkward to talk about some things. It's awkward to talk about our differences. And, and I want to acknowledge that I might say the wrong thing and you might say the wrong thing. And that's not because we're ill-intentioned or because we hate each other. It's just because it's sometimes hard to talk about this stuff. So I promise to forgive you and I want to ask you to forgive me. And, and if I do say something that feels wrong to you, ask me, ask me about it so I can explain myself better. When we do that, whether a negotiator does that or individuals do that, when we acknowledge that there will be challenges and then we think through what to do when we hit obstacles, 
we have a plan in place, it transformed those conversations and it transforms every conversation. Because the truth of the matter is that when we are fighting with someone, not only do we have a disagreement, but we also are just anxious about the unknown. We're anxious about what happens if I say the wrong thing or you say the wrong thing. What happens if we start fighting with each other? And when we acknowledge up front, we both want to come to this and we both want to make this a success, it makes it much easier to find our way through that difficult conversation. What I hear are two people sharing their vulnerabilities. I mean, their willingness to sort of admit up front, I'm going to screw up here um, and I will forgive you if you forgive me. That's exactly right. And that reciprocal vulnerability is really, really important. You know, there was this study done called the Fast Friends Protocol, where these two researchers, a husband and wife team, they tried to figure out if they could come up with a series of questions that would make strangers into friends. And they eventually landed on them. It's 36 questions. I have them right here. Yes, yes. Exactly. And and people who probably know this have heard of it as the the 36 questions that lead to love. But what's interesting about that is that if one person asks all the questions and the other person answers, and then they flip places, it doesn't work. It's only when you go back and forth. I ask you a question, and then you ask me a question, and then I ask you another question. It's when we go back and forth and we can reciprocate each other's vulnerability. We can show that I hear your vulnerability, and I want to show you that I'm I'm willing to become vulnerable in response. That is when suddenly we start liking and trusting the other person that's when we feel like we have a connection. And many of those people who are strangers, they actually sought each other out. This is pre-internet. They sought each other out in the in the weeks afterwards. And one of them ended up getting married. It's a really mm-hmm. powerful thing. Well, let me just read a couple of them. Um, uh, this is the first one. Given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? Number two, would you like to be famous in what way? Number three, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say and why? And it goes on from there just to give our listeners kind of a flavor for what those questions are about. Speaking of the telephone, I, again, remember an interview years and years ago. It was about the history of the telephone. And early on, when when telephones were then installed in people's homes, the worry was it was going to be the ruination of family life because this phone (laughs) that was sitting in the hallway all by its lonesome um, was going to disrupt dinner and bedtime and, you know, all the conversations and things that, that can happen in a family. Obviously, we have learned to navigate that solo. Yeah. phone in the home. Today, of course, everyone's packing. Everyone's got a phone. And there is a struggle about how do we communicate with each other when we're being bombarded with, you know, with texts and emails and and, and content coming from our phone. Right. Our, our brains evolved to be incredible communication devices, but they evolved when there were no telephones and That's there was right. no internet, <laughs> a, different, a different period. It's interesting. So the other thing that that studies found. So when those, when phones first became popular, you're exactly right. There was this, this kind of collective panic about what they were going to do about the family. There was also a deep belief that people would not be able to have real conversations on the telephone because they couldn't see each other. Right. And what's interesting is if you look at the transcripts from those early phone conversations, they were exactly right. People didn't know how to talk to each other on the phone. They, they would basically use it like a telegraph, just giving each other lists of groceries to buy or stocks. Now, of course, by the time you and I and everyone listening was a teenager, 
we could talk on the phone for like seven hours a night. And they were some of the deepest conversations of our life. And what happened is that we learned how to use this channel of communication. We're very adaptable when it comes to how to communicate. And in fact, something that often happens, studies show, is that when you're talking on the phone without realizing it, you tend to over enunciate your words a little bit. You put more emotion into your voice because you know the person can't see you. Now, we've been talking on telephones for almost 100 years now. We've been talking on the internet for 25 years tops. And for many forms of communication, Slack and emojis and DMs, they're five or six years old. And so oftentimes, we don't intuit that there are different rules for different forms of communication, but there are. We know that, for instance, in an online conversation, if you're a little bit more polite, it tends to make everything enormously better. Hmm. And that, again, online, if I say something sarcastic, I can hear the sarcasm in my head. If you were talking to me, you could hear the sarcasm in my voice. But when I type it out, that sarcasm isn't obvious. And so as a result, you might read it and get upset. So what we find is that super communicators, particularly who are good at communicating online, one of the things that they do is they just remind themselves regularly, different forms of communications have different rules. And so sending a text is different from sending an email, different from telephoning someone, is different from talking to them face to face. Just small little differences. But if I remember those small little differences, if I remind myself of them, and I, we all know them, then every form of communication will be better. So you're saying we will learn how to do this stuff, Oh, right? I have a 12-year-old. Yeah, I have a 12-year-old okay. and a 15-year-old. <laughs> I mean, they they are they are pros at these different types yes, of communication. Yes, they are. <laughs> they send messages that I literally can't understand because it's a series of emojis, right. but their friends know exactly what they're right. saying. And, and it's not just because they're young. It's because they're paying more attention. Let me toss out a couple of more things that, that I read from your book that I found really interesting. One was a story of this Iraqi soccer team that was made up of yeah. Muslims and Christians. And it it uh, proves this theory. It's called the uh, contact hypothesis. Without giving too much away, Charles, tell us tell us what happened and how that worked. Yeah, I think I love this story. It's so a this great was an story. experiment run by a, a researcher who went to Iraq and in a, in a particular town, there were a number of soccer teams, but almost all the soccer teams were Christian soccer teams. No one who is Muslim was allowed on those soccer teams. And so they announced that they were starting a new league. And this league was going to give everyone really fancy trophies. They were going to have professional coaches, better gear. But the deal is, if you joined that league, you had to be willing to include three people on your team who weren't on the team already that were chosen by the experimenters. And so for half the teams, they chose Christians. So it's an all-Christian team. Right. And for half the teams, they chose Muslim players. So suddenly, this was a, this was a team that included both Christian and Muslims. Now, in this, this particular town, Christians and Muslims, they basically lived in different societies. They, they were actually, there's people who would stand at grocery doors or grocery store doors or bar doors, and they would check your ID where it listed your religion. And there were Christian bars and Muslim, well, not Muslim bars, but Muslim places to gather. Right. And there were Christian grocery stores. And, yeah. And Muslim grocery stores. So it was a very divided community. And at first, those teams that were mixed, they were also very divided. The, base, the players wouldn't actually sit next to each other on the benches. They wouldn't play together well. 
So then what the experimenters did is they introduced a new rule that said everyone had to play the same amount. Hmm. And what happened is that the teams that weren't communicating because some of the players were Muslim and, and they didn't, the Christians didn't want to actually play with them, they started losing. And once we changed the salience of certain cultural identities, once we said, actually, you're not Christians and Muslims, you're all soccer players. And you're as soccer players, you want to win. Suddenly, all these differences started dropping away. And in fact, you saw Christians inviting Muslims over to their homes for tea. You saw Muslims inviting Christians to weddings. It It's one of the most effective examples of how bringing groups together can can overcome these old hatreds, these old stereotypes. But the key is you need to find, you need to change the environment so that other factors, the things that we have in common, have more salience than things like religion, which really doesn't matter on the soccer field, have less salience. And then our brains kind of follow. And one more thing I want to toss out, and I remember um, seeing and hearing about teachers who would say to students who might be upset about something, do you want to be helped? Do you want to be hugged? Or do you want to be heard? And you write about this, Charles, in your book. And we have about a minute before the end of the show. Um, but it seems those are questions that could apply to not just children, but to all of us, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and those are the three kinds of conversations, the practical, the, the emotional, and the social. In fact, you know, I mentioned that me and my wife, this started because me and my wife would were in this bad pattern. Now, when I start complaining about my day, my wife will often ask me, do, do you want me to help you solve this problem or do you just need to fit? Do you, <laughs> you want me just hug? to listen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love it when she asks me that because sometimes I haven't, I haven't asked myself that question until she asks it. <laughs> what she's really asking is like, what kind of conversation are you looking for? How can we connect with each other? And, and if I say, no, this isn't a big deal. I just need to vent and I need you to hear that like, I'm kind of upset, but it's going to go away. As soon as we're aligned that way, then when she does say, okay, do you want to talk about solutions now? I say, yeah, yeah, I want, I want to, I want to move with you to a different kind of conversation. It's enormously powerful. Almost out of time here. So are you a better communicator having oh, spent all this so time much. writing this book? Yes. Yeah, yes, yes. so much. I mean, and, and particularly with like my kids and my coworkers, I just find I ask those deep questions now. I used to ask my kids, what did you do at school? Like, did you learn anything? No, right. of course. No. Right. I would ask them about the facts of their life. But now that I ask them how they feel about their life, I say things like, you know, what was the best thing that you did today? Hmm. I know that you hung out with Jasper. Like, what do you admire about Jasper? What, what makes him special? Then they just start talking and talking and talking. And that's how I learn who they really are. Well, Charles Duhigg, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. And again, his book is called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of the program. Debbie Builder is senior producer. Paige Murray Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoin. Have a great weekend. Join us next week for another edition of The Connection right here on WHYY.